The sermon text for today is Philippians chapter 2, verses 1 through 11. You can find this passage in the Blue Pew Bible on page 1785. Listen as I read God's word. Therefore, if you have any encouragement from being united with Christ, if any comfort from his love, If any common sharing in the spirit, if any tenderness and compassion, then make my joy complete by being like-minded, having the same love, being one in spirit and of one mind. Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. Rather, in humility, value others above yourselves, not looking for your own interests, but each of you to the interests of the others. In your relationships with one another, have the same mindset as Christ Jesus, who being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness, and being found in appearance as a man. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. Therefore God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue acknowledge that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Here ends the reading. Good morning, everyone. Glad to be with you here this morning. My name is John. If I haven't had the chance to meet you, I get to serve as the lead pastor here at Elmwood. As we come to this passage, would you, as we do each week, would you join me in a word of prayer? Praise the Lord, all you nations. Extol him, all you peoples. For great is his love towards us, and the faithfulness of the Lord endures forever. Praise the Lord. Lord, this morning we do indeed praise you. We praise you for your great love towards us, for your faithfulness towards us. And as we look at this passage here today that is so densely packed, that is so rich, that is so filled with uh, the truth and the wonder and the beauty and the mystery of the gospel, we pray that you would give us eyes to see. Lord, there's so much that is in this passage, and we want to come away with something tangible. We want to come away with something that leaves us different than when we came in here today. And so we pray, Holy Spirit, that even right now that you would meet us here in a unique and special way, and that you would draw our minds and our hearts towards Jesus. And we ask this in his name. And all God's people said, Amen. But we live in a unique cultural and technological environment that makes unity something that is hard to come by. If you were to stop 50 people on the street and give them each 10 words to describe the culture, the society, the environment that we live in these days, I don't suspect that unity would be anywhere on that list, even if you gave them 20, 30, 50, 100 words 
to describe the cultural environment in which we live. We live in a unique cultural and technological environment where unity is just simply very hard to come by. There's a number of different factors that lead to this, one of them being the 24-hour news cycle, a constant drip of information. Uh, you can choose whichever perspective you want and get the same information uh, presented from a different point of view from any news source that you'd like. There's a 24-hour news cycle. There's social media, which has changed the way that we do relationships just in general. It's changed the way that we communicate with one another. We'll typically say things to people on social media that we may not say to their face because there's, uh, there's a distance between us and our computer screens. There's just simply the way that uh, technology has changed the way that we receive information and how we present information, how we receive news. There's the constant access to an seemingly unlimited amount of information. With the click of a mouse, we can search almost anything and get answers to almost anything in the world so quickly. There's a growing suspicion and distrust of news sources that used to be considered credible or unbiased. And so all of these things put together, and many more things, lead to a sort of cultural, societal environment where unity is hard to come by. Unity is difficult to come by, but there's, I think, an inner longing inside of us for something better, for something better than the kind of disunity and the kind of factions and the kind of divisiveness and polarization that we experience, uh, especially in recent times. I used to work at a grocery store uh, up in Hugo, Minnesota, and I was working one evening and there was a tornado that came through Hugo and uh, knocked a bunch of houses down and ruined a bunch of stuff. And I remember I was working that night, and so I remember being there and coming out, and my car was pelted with hail. And I remember uh, in all the aftermath of this, hearing people talk about how inspiring it was that in the aftermath of this tornado that came through, people just came together like they had never seen before. And of course, the grocery store where I worked donated a bunch of water and supplies and other things. And I remember talking with one of the managers there who was not a Jesus follower, and she was saying, I just have goosebumps when I think about how amazing it is that in the face of this disaster that happened, everybody just comes together. And it's like all the differences that we would normally be so concerned about don't seem to make any difference at all right now. And there's something about being in an environment experiencing something like that that gives us a special glimpse into something that we don't often see, something that we don't often experience. And we find ourselves sometimes asking the question, why does it take a tragedy? Why does it take a natural disaster for people to come together across differences? People that would normally not even talk to each other, people that would normally be enemies of one another, all of a sudden are unified and rallied around helping each other when there's something like this that happens. And we ask ourselves the question, why can't we experience something like this more often? Why does it take something like this for us to experience something of this kind of unity? Something inside of us longs for this sort of unity to be normal. We want to experience it. We want to see it. And yet our daily experience is that we don't often find this sort of unity as something that is a part of our everyday life. And the church is not immune to this either, by the way. Some of you have been a part of local churches that have experienced significant conflict, factions, divisions. Some of you have been through church splits before. And some of you, just through your 
experience, maybe uh, having decades of experience in the church, know that church people can be downright mean and can be just as divisive, just as extremist, just as polarizing, just as disruptive as anybody else can be. And so the church itself is not even immune to experiencing disunity as well. Unity is something that's hard to come by. But the good, the good news is that the gospel provides us with resources that enable us to experience unity. The resources that are available to us, to us in the gospel make it possible for us not just to experience unity, but also to sustain unity for the long haul. And that's what we're going to be thinking about this morning as we look at this passage. And just so you guys know, we are not going to spend really much time at all looking at verses 9 through 11. We're also going to uh, have a sermon on this same exact passage next week uh, because it's so rich and so filled with meaning that we don't want to try and just cram these whole 11 verses into one week. So if you get to the end and feel like there's parts that we didn't really talk about, don't worry, we'll talk about them uh, more next week as well. So let's think about this idea of unity here today. And as we do, as we look at this passage, the first thing we see here is the plea to be unified. We see Paul's pleading with the Philippian church, pleading with them and urging them to be unified. Therefore, if you have any encouragement from being united with Christ, if any comfort from his love, if any common sharing in the spirit, if any tenderness and compassion, then make my joy complete by being like-minded, having the same love, being in one spirit and of one mind. Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. Rather, in humility, value others above yourselves. Not looking to your own interests, but each of you to the interests of others. Now, in the original language, these four verses are one really long sentence, uh, but it's pretty easy to spot sort of the main thrust or the main command, the main instruction that Paul gives here. He says to these believers, make my joy complete by being like-minded, having the same love, being in one spirit and of one mind. And don't forget, in the passage just previous to this, Paul said, Conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ, then I will know that you stand firm in the one spirit, striving together as one for the faith of the gospel. So in this part of the letter to the Philippians, there's this sort of concentration of language that has to do with the subject of unity. And what that clues us into is that for all this church was doing right, for all the things that they had going for them, there was a unity problem that they experienced. And so Paul writes to them and he urges them to be unified. And I think the essence of what Paul is saying here in these verses is this. He's saying, you are already unified in Jesus. Now live like it. You already are united to Christ. You already are in one body. You already share in one spirit together. You already have a kind of objective unity in the person of Jesus. Now live like it. He says in verse 1, if you have any encouragement from being united with Christ, any comfort from his love, any common sharing in the spirit, any tenderness and compassion. The way Paul says this is he's assuming that these things are true about them. So he's writing to them saying, you already have encouragement from being united together with Christ. You are united in him. You are one body. He says, you have comfort from his love. You have common sharing in the spirit. You've been given the same Holy Spirit that now indwells you not only as an individual, but indwells and lives among you as a church community. 
So he says, you already have sharing in the spirit. You already have tenderness and compassion. So he's saying, these things are already true about who you are, sort of objectively. Now live like it's true. Let these things that are true about you be expressed and exemplified in the way that you live in relationship with one another. Last year, our family got a new car, and it was a new-to-us car. It's a 2010, which is the newest car we've ever owned. And uh, so we get, this, we get this car that's big enough to hold more than like our immediate family in a cooler in the back, and it's also big enough to pull the pop-up camper we have. And so we, we get this car, and all of a sudden, we have a vehicle that has these features that we've never had before. Okay, it's got like heated seats, and it has a backup camera, and it has four-wheel drive, and we're driving this thing, and we're like, whoa, I could get used to this. You know, like these, these heated seats in the wintertime, boy, that feels great. You know, in the wintertime, man, it sure is convenient to be able to have this four-wheel drive. And you know, man, it sure is nice. I don't have to strain my neck to look behind me when I'm, you know, backing up. I got this camera that can show me what's behind me. And it's got all these things that not only have we lived without for like our entire adult lives, but also most people who have ever owned a vehicle before have never had those things, right? These are sort of modern uh, conveniences that exist on motor vehicles. And as, as exciting and as great and as wonderful as those things are, they're not essential for getting you from A to B. People have lived for decades without backup cameras and they've been able to get to point A to point B just fine. Now, when Paul is urging these believers towards unity, he's not urging them towards what could be considered the backup camera of the Christian life. Okay? He's not urging them towards what are like the heated seats of the Christian church community. Where he's saying, you know, these things are great. They're wonderful. They're nice conveniences. They're nice additions to what you already have. But in the end, they're not really all that necessary. He's not positioning these things as a nice convenient that's sort of a a level up on the Christianity that you already have. What he's describing here is something that is essential to the life of the local church. What he's saying is that unity is essential to the life and the mission of the local church. It's not a convenience. It's not an add-on. It's not something that's like, well, it's great when you can experience it, but we shouldn't really go all that far to try and, you know, experience unity. No, Paul says this is a bedrock part of what it means to be a follower of Jesus. You, as a person who's united to him, you have a new identity in which you, along with everybody else who's a part of the local church, is by definition a part of a new body. And so unity is an essential part of you living out your discipleship to Jesus, is living in relationship with all these other people that God has placed around you who also share that same spirit, that also share that same family relationship now in the local church. And so we see him here pleading for them to be unified. He's urging them towards this because he knows that they're not unified. And his urging of them, his pleading for them to be unified is rooted in the reality of their disunity. So he's pleading for them to be unified because he knows that they're not. And as we read the letter to the Philippians, you get a sense of some of the ways that they are experiencing a lack of unity. So earlier in chapter 1, Paul is writing about his imprisonment, and he's telling these believers, he's saying, okay guys, uh, my imprisonment has actually served to advance the gospel. And he gives a couple ways that that's true. He says, because of my imprisonment, 
Jesus followers have become more courageous to share the message of the gospel. And then he goes on to say, but not everybody's sharing the, the message of the gospel from the same motivation. Not everybody has the same reason for sharing the gospel. He says there's some who share it out of goodwill, some who share it out of love, and there's some who share it out of selfish ambition, out of envy, out of rivalry, and in some bizarre way to try and make his life in prison more miserable. So Paul's writing to a church that doesn't even have unity in the very reason for them doing gospel ministry in the first place. Some of them are doing it out of good motives. Others of them are doing gospel ministry out of a, a attempt to try and hurt Paul. So they're not even unified in the very reason, the motivation for them doing ministry and proclaiming the message of Jesus in the first place. Then we see later in the letter, in chapter 4, Paul says, I plead with Euodia and I plead with Syntyche to be of the same mind in the Lord, which is the same exact language he uses here in chapter 2, of being in the same mind. And so what we see with Euodia and Syntyche is that in all likelihood, these were two women in the church who represented factions who were sort of at war with one another. It's probably not just a sort of localized, personal, individual conflict. It's probably that he's urging these women knowing that they are leading other people in the church and other people will follow their lead. And as a result of that, he's saying you need to be unified. He's pleading with them to be unified, to be of one mind in the Lord. And he's urging them towards this because he knows that they are disunified. One of the things we know about the church in Philippi from Acts chapter 16 is that this was a very diverse group of people. There was one lady who was a very wealthy business owner who dealt in high-end luxury clothing. She was a God-fearer. You have another person who was a slave girl who used to be possessed by demons and then you have a Roman jailer who was a, in all likelihood, a retired Roman veteran soldier, battle-tested, battle-hardened, who was given this position as a guard in this local prison. And you take all these people who we see these conversion stories in the book of Acts, we know that these were the kinds of people that were in the church in Philippi. And so just think about this for a moment. Paul is writing to this group of people and what happened is that all of a sudden they find themselves amidst all of the differences that they experience. And they're very different people. They come from different socioeconomic statuses. They come from different backgrounds. They come from different ages. They come from different parts of the world. Amidst all of those differences, they get thrown into the same room. And all of a sudden they're told, you are a part of a new family. And you are a family together with this slave girl who used to be oppressed by demons. You are now one family with this guy who values honor and the Roman way of life almost above everything else. And Paul knows that when you take these kinds of people and you put them together in the same room and you say, okay, you are now a family and you are now going to walk out your discipleship to Jesus in the context of these relationships and you are going to love one another, Paul knows that this is not going to trend towards unity. When you put diverse people like this from diversity of backgrounds, all a part of the same family, it doesn't naturally work its way out in unity. And the same thing is true, friends, of our church family as well. 
What's true of us is that within our church family, we have all of the ingredients for disunity. Now, let me explain, let me just back up a second. <laughs> One of the great joys I've had in this ministry that I've been a part of for three years now is to see the amount of unity that we do have through the revitalization, through everything to do with COVID. What I've observed and what others from our church family have also affirmed is that Elmwood has a well above average degree of unity within our church family, okay? At the same time, we also, currently sitting in the room, are all of the ingredients for a whole bunch of disunity. And that's because even though we are unified, we don't all hold the same convictions about things. We don't all hold the exact same theological convictions. We all agree on the essentials of the message of the gospel, the life, the death, the resurrection, the ascension of Jesus. We all agree on that. And yet in secondary issues, in secondary matters, there's some of us who have very strong opinions about our convictions in those things. And we are never going to be uniform in all of the theological convictions that we have. We do not have uniformity in ministry preference. What does ministry look like? What's the most effective way to reach out, to equip, to mobilize? How should we do ministry? What should our church family, what should the dynamics of it look like? We don't all have the same opinion or perspective on that. We don't all come from the same cultural background. We don't all come from the same part of the world. We don't all have the same life experiences or gifting or personality. We are different in so many ways. We don't all share the same political convictions. Questions like, what should the size and the scope and the role of a government be? How do we balance personal rights with the common good? What role does the government play in matters of justice and equity? What kind of policy should the government enact, whether it federally or locally, in order to achieve the most amount of human flourishing? We don't all agree on the answer to those questions. We don't all come from the same generation. There's almost 100 years worth of difference that exists within our church family. So we don't share the same generational values and assumptions. And so all of these things being true, what that means is that at any moment, those things could erupt into factions. Those things could erupt into conflict and disunity. Without the Spirit's work among us, all of those things, all of the differences that exist among us currently have the potential to unravel into disunity, have the potential to be sort of deal breakers for unity. So even within our own church family, we don't all hold the same convictions about everything. We are unified, but we are not uniform in everything. And so Paul is urging these believers to be unified because he knows that they are not unified. And we, like them, have an incredible potential for disunity. Praise God that we don't experience that. But the question is, okay, how do we, how do we achieve unity? How, how do we, maybe the question for us is not how do we get it in the first place, how do we protect, how do we guard the unity that we do have? How do we experience that unity over the long haul? 
And Paul tells us in this passage. We see him pleading for them to be unified. We see the reality of their disunity. And lastly, what he shows us is the path to true and lasting unity. He shows us how we can get it. He says in verse 3, Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit, rather in humility. Value others above yourselves. That's the key. Humility. Notice what Paul does not say. He doesn't say, if you guys want to be unified, you need to find a way to agree on everything. You need to find a way to all look the same and talk the same and value the same things and come to the exact same conclusions on everything. And as soon as you are uniform in everything that you believe and in all the things that you look to as ministry practice, as soon as you agree on everything, then you'll be unified. He doesn't say that. Unity is not rooted in that kind of uniformity where we're just a bunch of carbon copies of one another, where we're sort of a blanded out vanilla congregation of people that, you know, you can corner any of us and ask us a question and you're going to get the same exact parroted answer from any of us. That's not at all what Paul's vision for humility is or how we accomplish unity. He points to the person of Jesus and says, in humility, value others above yourselves. And so the point, as we think about the subject of unity, the point is this. In order to sustain unity over the long haul, we must possess the humility of Jesus. That's the key. For us to maintain unity amidst any kind of circumstances, doesn't matter who's a part of our church family, we can maintain unity when we all possess the humility of Jesus. Now Paul says it in this passage, he says it both negatively and positively. So negatively, he says, do nothing out of selfish ambition. Look not only to your interests, but also to the interests of others. He knows that looking to the interests of ourselves first, that will destroy, that will kill unity. The attitude or the heart disposition that says, my needs, my desires, my wants, my preferences first, that will kill any unity that exists. Can you imagine how miserable it would be to be a part of a church of 100 people who are all acting out of the, the mentality of me first? That sounds like a horrible experience. And so Paul says, do nothing out of selfish ambition, do nothing out of vain conceit, don't look to your own interests, don't have that heart posture that will kill unity. The reality is this, that unity comes at the cost of our own sense of self-importance. Unity will come at the cost of our own self-importance. Meaning that if we live with a sense of self-importance, if we live with a sense of self-entitlement, if we live with a sense of my needs first, we will never experience unity. Unity will only come when we choose to die to ourselves. Unity will only come, unity will only be maintained when we are not looking to, what's best for me? What's my preferences? What do I want here? And instead, all of us together, collectively as a church family, say, what's good for everybody? What's good for the other person? And we look not only to our own interests, but we look to the interests of others. Unity will come only at the death of our sense of self-importance. 
So he says it negatively. Do nothing out of selfish ambition. Do not look to your own interests only. And then he says it positively. He says, value others above yourselves. Look to the interests of others. And ultimately, it comes down to this, where he says, have the mindset that you see in Jesus, the humility that you see in Jesus, the disposition of others first. Have that among yourselves, and you will be a unified church. He tells us what this mindset is. He says, in your relationships with one another, verse 5, had the same mind as Christ Jesus, who being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. So Jesus is God. Jesus is the second member of the Trinity. And the text tells us that he did not consider equality with God something to be used for his own advantage. He didn't cling to it. Imagine a CEO of a very large corporation and this person, he or she, is walking through the halls of their headquarters and they come across a garbage can that's just overflowing with garbage. Maybe it's near the food court and there's just half-eaten food that's spilling on the floor and there's uh, some pop or juice or some other sticky, sugary beverage that's spilled on the floor and it's sticky and there's stuff sticking in it and it's, all just, it's just gross. And imagine that CEO walking past that garbage can and saying to himself or to herself, I'm a CEO. We pay people for stuff like this. And in that moment, what that CEO is doing is clinging to their status. They're using their status to their own advantage. Saying, I'm the CEO. I get paid to do these kind of things. I'm not responsible for this. I don't have to do this. This isn't my job. And so they cling to their status as CEO that does CEO types of things so that they don't have to do the dirty work of doing what a janitor may be paid to do. In the same way, Jesus did not cling to his status. He did not cling to his divine status. He did not use it as something to his own advantage. He did not look at us in the mess that we've created. He did not look at the mess that we've created in our world. He did not look at us in the sinfulness and the idolatry and the brokenness that exists inside of us that we have brought into the world. He did not look at us and say, I'm God, this isn't my job. I didn't create this mess in the first place. I didn't do this. This is not my responsibility to fix this. Rather, what Jesus did was he was humble. You see, Jesus is nothing like us. If we were in the position of that CEO, we would all walk by the garbage can and say, I wish someone would take care of that. Jesus could have said, someone ought to take care of that. And yet what he did was he did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing taking the very nature of a servant or a slave, being made in human likeness and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. So you see the humility of Jesus in this passage. You see the downward trajectory that his 
life took from the glory of heaven to the suffering and the humiliation of the cross. And Jesus did not say, he did not cling to his rights and say, as God, I deserve glory. As God, I deserve unending praise, adoration. I deserve unending worship. I deserve that, not shame, not humiliation. He didn't cling to his divine status as the one who deserves all rightful worship and adoration as a way of saying, I'm not going to take on the form of a servant. No, what Jesus did was he humbled himself. He did not count his equality with God as something to be used for his own advantage. And the good news is that Jesus humbled himself so that others could flourish. This is at the heart of the message of the gospel, and this is why this humility that will lead us to unity is, is, is not a nice addition or add-on to the Christian faith, but it's essential. Because the only thing that will produce that kind of unity is exemplifying the kind of character that we see in the person of Jesus. This humility is central to the message of the gospel. God himself did not cling to his status. Jesus didn't cling to his status and refuse to experience suffering or humiliation or shame. He took it on himself. And the, the very reason that we are saved in the first place is because Jesus humbled himself. Jesus experienced humility. He gave himself, he took on human flesh when he did not have to in order to rescue us. And this is at the heart of the gospel. Jesus humbled himself so that others can flourish. And so Paul says to these believers, look at who Jesus is. Look at what Jesus did for you. He gave up his glory. He gave up all those things that he had a right to hold on to. And he humbled himself and he suffered. And he died so that you could be brought back into the family of God. Look at him. And as your, your mind is captivated with the beauty of the humility that Jesus exemplifies perfectly for us. And as that humility begins to work its way out in your relationships. When you begin looking to other people with the same kind of attitude that Jesus had towards us. Where he saw us in the midst of our brokenness. He saw us in the midst of our depravity. And he looked not to his own interests, but to ours. Jesus labored in prayer in the Garden of Gethsemane the night before he died and, and prayed to the Father, if there's any other way, if there's any way I can get out of the suffering and the humiliation and the shame, please make it be so. But ultimately, he did not look to his own needs, but he looked to our needs. And he was willing to lay aside his preferences. He was willing to lay aside his life so that we could be brought into the family of God. And so Paul says, have this mind among yourselves. This humility that you see in Jesus, have that among yourselves. Think this way. Let that permeate your life. Let it permeate your relationships. And as you do, you'll begin to experience unity. You'll begin to experience a kind of unity that cannot be had anywhere else. You can have a kind of unity that really is something of uniformity. But you'll never have deep, lasting, true unity like this unless the Holy Spirit is at work in you to cultivate in you the humility of Jesus. We will never sustain unity over the long haul as a church family if the Holy Spirit is not working into us the humility of Jesus. But the good news is that we can experience that. 
And so Paul's instruction to them, his instruction for us as well, is have the same mind among yourselves that you see in Jesus. Now this unity that we get to experience, there's lots of benefits for us in this. As we exemplify the humility we see in Jesus and as we experience unity, uh, we get to experience something of God's design for us. There are things that we will never experience if we live in a state of disunity. I think back on our journey through the revitalization process. And I think if, if we didn't have the kind of unity that we have, we would have never survived that journey. I think back over the last two years and thinking about COVID and all the restrictions and the mandates and the lockdowns and all the, you know, all the protocols and all, the, all that everything. I know of churches that have split over this stuff. When you put people in the pressure cooker of not ideal circumstances, those ruptures, those fissures, those become more apparent. And if it wasn't for the unity that God has sown into our church family over these last couple of years, I don't know if we would have survived COVID either. But in God's mercy, he's been kind to us. And our church family has been so humble in so many ways. And it's such a gift. And there's a, there's a benefit for us who get to experience that together. There's something so sweet about being in a church family where we know that we don't agree on everything, and yet we also have a deep sense of unity in what matters most. We have a deep sense of unity in the essentials of the gospel, and we can be okay with other people not believing every single thing that we believe about every single thing. There's a benefit for us in that. And I think there's also a benefit for us and our witness as a church in this too, especially in the environment that we find ourselves living in, culturally and technologically, where unity can be so hard to come by, the community of our church and the ecosystem of our church and the humility and the unity we get to experience is itself a witness to the watching world that there is something different happening here. There's something that, that, that people, I think, will be able to look at our church family and to be able to see the unity in the midst of diversity and say, how is it possible that you guys have that? Everybody else is just angry about everything all the time. And you guys are different, and yet you don't want to kill each other. How is that possible? And we can be, as a church family, something of an oasis in the midst of a culture that seems to be spiraling out of control in that direction of, of polarization and extremism, to have a place that's a respite from that, to have a place that is like a, a, a place where you can go and experience something so different. That in and of itself is a beautiful witness to the community around us. And so we get to experience the benefits of unity and we get to experience the ways that God can use that unity even through us to, to communicate something about who Jesus is. Something about who God is is communicated by us being a unified church. And so we get to experience that together. And so Paul's instruction for us is have this same mind among yourselves which is yours in Christ Jesus. As we come to the communion table today, I want to invite us to take just a few moments of silent confession and reflection. As we come to the Lord's table, we get to be reminded in a very tangible way of how God humbled himself and took on human flesh and he suffered and he died on a cross as a criminal. And we get to receive the broken body and shed blood of Jesus and physically be reminded that he did that for us. It's a physical 
reminder and demonstration of the humility of Jesus and how he was humble and how in his humility we have been united together in Christ, we've been given new life, and we get to experience unity together as a church family. So would you take a few moments of silent confession and reflection as we come to the Lord's table. Merciful God, we confess that we have sinned against you in thought, in word, in deed, by the things that we have done as well as by the things that we have left undone. We confess that we have not loved you with our whole heart, mind, and strength, and we have not loved our neighbors as ourselves. In your mercy, Lord, we pray that you would forgive what we have been, help us amend what we are, and direct what we shall be, so that we may delight in your will and walk in your ways to the glory of your holy name. And all God's people said, Amen.